the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Well, good day, everybody. Uh, welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Uh, this is not Dan Proft. I'm Scott Shelley. Otherwise known as the cow guy, I wear the black and white jackets on uh, a lot of the Fox Business News or any other financial cable network that uh, you might see me on. And I generally speak about um, public policy, uh, the markets, you know, economics, some of the stuff that I used to find really boring when I was a kid. But um, I've been, I hopefully have been able to make it a little bit less boring or a little more exciting to everybody out there. Because you know what I, I like to uh, pride myself on is I, I like to bring some common sense to the, to the argument. And, and I think that's my biggest, I've been able to explain things I think that are sometimes difficult for people to understand in, in a quick 60, 90 second blurb that uh, kind of brings it home to roost. And, and if that, that was a, a, a skill, it's never been more important than it is now because of a lot of the garbage that's being fed to us. Uh, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not a crazy tinfoil hat person, believe me. And I'm not a QAnon. I'm not uh, off my rocker when it comes to the the huge conspiracy theories, although um, you know there may be some, I, I can't refute that. But I would say this, you know, I I was never uh, impressed with politicians as a young man. I'm I'm older now, but uh, I was never impressed with them. And and um, forever for for some of the reasons they go into office or don't go into office, it doesn't matter. But they weren't really the smartest guys in the room to me, right? They, they, you know, the smartest guys in the room got great jobs and made a lot of money. <laughs> now, yes, every now and again there was that weird guy that looked at it like a vocation. Maybe his folks or his dad or mother were in politics for a long time before him or her. Um, but generally speaking, um, you know, I don't dislike politicians, but they weren't intimidating to me or I didn't believe that they knew more about anything than I do. Um, and, but now we find ourselves in these situations where, where do, where does one begin? Um, now you don't. If you didn't know me now, you might have known me before. I I uh, I spent 16 years in London. I've got a British passport. Um, I tell you what, that was probably some of the most formative, uh, see, politically thinking years of my life, where I actually had to look at the U.S. from outside of the U.S. I didn't ha- I didn't get to digest all the garbage that you fed, spoon fed here every single day. I mean, not to say that the international press was any better or worse, but it was just a nice, it was nice to see a different perspective. And I was able to get, I think, maybe a healthier point of view of my own country and the country I love. Um, don't get me wrong, I love England as well, but, um, you know, I was born here. I'm from Des Moines, Iowa, right? There's there's not that many people that would admit that on radio, right? Des Moines, Iowa. And I'm proud of my, my Midwestern heritage, and uh, and I think that uh, that's done me well for the travels that I've I've had. Um, in the 55 years I've been on this earth. And, and that's led me to this point where we've now got something that's been interrupting my business. It started off with the tariffs with uh, Donald Trump, and that was fine. But uh, now we've got this issue with China and the coronavirus, and it gets beaten up to death. And sometimes I get sick of talking about it myself. And I can't 
<clears throat> turn on the news without seeing these um, crazy words that are they're trying to you know emotive words that are trying to get me to feel scared and and I'm not scared um, you know sometimes when everybody else is losing their mind around you you have to kind of find a place to go and, and gather your thoughts and you know everybody needs to know that this disease or this virus attacks the elderly and that doesn't mean to, to you know to diminish those that are older and but that that's as we had a guest on we're going to have a guest on um later today but we can talk about the the fact that look we a large percentage of the people back in the summer when Italy was going the hot spot of the world right did you know that the average age of death was 80 no, they don't tell you that, right? Because it doesn't behoove the government, so they can't control you. But that's a whole other story. But there's uh, the, the damage that this virus has done psychologically is really what I'm trying to get at here. Uh, the psychological damage, um, when we talk about getting a vaccine and getting back to normal, uh, I'm going to give you a newsflash, folks. We're not going back to normal, right? We might get back to some semblance of normal. but I, And I don't want to give mainstream media too much attention, but... I definitely think that we have damaged the American psyche to such an extent. It's it's now December, right? This thing hit us in February, March. I know people that are a lot smarter than I am at my age that still are too afraid to go to a restaurant. They're still afraid of getting something that as long as you're under the age of 55, you have a 99.97% chance of surviving if you contract it, taking everything into consideration. So, where do we go and how do we handle things and how do we get back to a, a semblance of, of, of normalcy when we have that psychological damage done to the American investing mind or the consumer's mind? It doesn't matter. How are we going to climb out of that? Because the government thinks the government thinks that they can wave money at you, right? And the best way that I say that is that we could put a million dollars of gold bars at the end of some of these driveways of these people are too afraid to go to dinner and they're not coming out to go get that. It's, it's, it's not money to them. Their, their psyche is so damaged. It's beyond that. Or they would have gone to a restaurant already, or they would have come out and gone to their mailbox and taken the check or the gold bars or whatever. And, and that is what the government just doesn't understand. They've beat, they've gone so far and beating people up to try to control them, which they've done, which they've been able to do that now they can't get that horse back in the barn. They can't unring that bell. And I'll tell you, the reason why we've got out of 50 books written on inflation and deflation, 49 are going to be written on inflation because inflation is controllable, right? The central banks, those that are in, in government, they can control inflation. They know what levers to push and pull, and, and, they're, and it's a pretty straightforward process. But there's, the reason why there's only one book written on deflation it's because it's not about pulling and pushing levers. It's a psychological problem, trying to get the American consumer to spend. When they're all of the same mindset of it's going to get cheaper next month, I'm not going to buy it this month, that's a deflationary issue, and that's a psychological issue. And it's such a psychological issue that central banks, your legislatures, the, 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 the planners, city planners, they don't understand how to solve that problem. And so they don't even really even write about it. So... We have now moved into a situation where it's a psychological issue. The psyche of America is bruised, and that's why we're never going back to the way it was. Now, I'm sure we'll get close. America is a pretty uh, resilient society. But let me ask you just a few questions. I mean, 104,000 people can get into Ann Arbor to watch Michigan play, regardless of whether or not I think Michigan's worth going to see right now. But 
When's the next time do you think that people are going to go in there shoulder to shoulder for four hours? Maybe a couple years down the road, maybe not. How many people are going to get the vaccine? That That's going to rage and rage and rage. How many people are going to get into a crowded 30, you know, a packed elevator with 30 people in it? I mean, it's now going to start to affect their minds. Now, you're going to go to a restaurant. Remember those little intimate restaurants you'd go to in London or New York and those small little alleyed streets, the cobblestone streets, where you basically were shoulder to shoulder with the couple next to you. You could hear what they were talking about as well as what you were talking about. How, how many people are going to go back to one of those things? And on top of that, you know, all those, all those say, you know, uh, you're, you're a great chef in the Army, right? And you, and you come out of the Army and you want to go to Cordon Bleu. You pay for the classes. You're a great chef. And you're, and you're going to take, you know, second mortgage out on your house. You're going to drain your 401K. And you're going to go into business and open up your dream restaurant. Only to have the government flip the switch and put you out of business and ruin everything that you've worked for for your entire life? Who's going to do that? So this is this the psychological issue is out of the it's, it's it's out of the barn and they can't get it back in you know they don't realize that they're because of that psychological issue you're not going to have the business investment from the small guy anymore the large guy doesn't care he can he could put in his business plan being shut down for 8 12 months that's what we're that's what we've got happening our legislatures and our governors and and, and our mayors are, are turning our main street into big box stores and chain restaurants. So in five years' time, you're not going to have the corner pizza joint. You're not going to have the corner hardware guy. It's just going to be bed, bath, and a burger. And isn't that sad? Because no one's going to want to sit there and take the risk of getting shut down and losing absolutely everything. Folks, we, we haven't had a true reckoning of the damage. Look, I, I, I've been in the big cities, right? You go to the canyons of where we have these huge skyscrapers. And all the concierge levels... There's five, six, sometimes ten businesses from the key cutter guy to the tavern to the pizza guy to the sandwich guy. They're all gone forever, okay? They're not coming back. We haven't begun to take, take stock of the damage that this, this, this virus or the way we've handled it has done to the economy to its core, number one. And then number two, the even bigger problem is the, 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 the bruised psyche of the American trader and investor and, and, and consumer. That's, what I'm, that's where I say uh, that's going to be a very difficult thing to get over. That's going to be something that you just can't throw money at. The only thing that is going to solve this issue and get us back to some semblance of normal, which I don't think we're ever going to go back to, is I hate to say it, but it's just time. You can't speed up time with money. You can't speed up time with cash or gold. It's just going to take time. So that's what's going to really be the thing that gets us out of this, and that's probably a two- to four-year ordeal. So I, I, without being a Debbie, Debbie Downer, uh, I'll leave it at that, but that's uh, uh, that's a pretty good, to me, a good uh, undertaking about what we're facing right now. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Well, good day, everybody. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. You can tell that I'm not Dan Proft. He's much better looking and smarter than I am, but I'm Scott Shelley. Uh, otherwise known as the cow guy, you'll catch me on Fox Business News and other cable outlets talking about the public policy and the economy and the markets. But uh, we've got somebody with us today 
they can cover all that and probably a lot better than I can. But uh, his name is John Nolte. He's uh, editor-at-large at uh, Breitbart. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Evan, for having me on. Yeah, I've got a note here about uh, something that you've uh, penned about the specter of Joe Biden presidency and lockdowns killing the job market. Can you give me a little bit of meat so I can get my teeth into it? Because I've sure got a lot to say about it as well. Well, I... If you looked at the job numbers this this last month, they yep. were terrible. Yep. We were expecting almost half a million, and it ended up being under a quarter million. And I believe two things are driving that: uh, the specter that of a of a Joe Biden presidency, which looks like it's going to happen now. I mean, we we, we still can't call the the election over, but that's looking more realistic by the day. And then you have the these continued fascist totally anti-scientific lockdowns that are killing job creation. And if there's anything, if there's anything people want in the economy, it's steadiness. They don't want to not know what the future looks like and it scares them and it scares them. You know, job creators got to hold on to their money. You know, this, this may not be a good time to expand because Joe Biden's talking about raising taxes. This may not be a good time to expand our staff because Joe Biden's talking about regulations might not be a good time to do anything because they're just locking us down willy-nilly now. I mean, the mayor of Los Angeles runs out in a black mask and screams at everyone, <laughs> literally. He says, cancel everything. Right. I mean, that undermines confidence in the future. And that's what people, if there's one thing, and, and one of the things, they're also looking, they know Biden's going to be the third Obama term. And Obama, then we had the worst recovery in yep. the history of this country was because Obama kept his boot on the neck of the economy because Obama constantly threatened higher taxes, constantly threatened new regulations. And it made it just made for an unreliable future and people held on to their money. And and by, by holding on to their money, that it's a naturally uh, deflationary. And I, I, I've been ranting about this probably for the last six months now. But, you know, we've got a psychological problem here. Right. And and obviously that manifests itself in the worries about, say, a third Obama term or, 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 or you know, Biden's first term. And, you know, also what people fail to realize, yes, things are getting better, but they're getting better at a slower pace. Right. We're creating jobs, but at a slower pace. So we're handing over an economy, regardless of if Trump was going to be in power or not. But we're handing over an economy that as month on month numbers show us. It's it's actually slowing a little bit and slowing now to the point where we're handing over this thing that really needs another jolt or some good ideas to a guy that's going to just probably follow a lot of what is, uh, you know, Obama did in his eight years. And again, you said it, the, the worst recovery of, of all time. So I think you're right. I think that that's got if you're a business leader or you're a corporate a corporate CEO I mean, what what are you going to do in in the face that you're going to kind of do it's going to be a wait and see right what's going to be happening here and that's the last thing that we need uh when we're trying to find ourselves we got 4 million people still looking for jobs right we're still not back to where we were before we went into this thing and, and we still like you said we have Garcetti walking around saying no this is where I think it shakes the confidence of people because, you know, I, I, I went out and bought the, the website domain name uh, commonsensocrat.com because I feel like I'm a commonsensocrat, right? I've, I've got an agrarian background. We have a family farm. Um, you know, if it's raining out, we just don't go outside. I, I don't let the press try to convince me that it's not raining. <laughs> um, but now you've got this Garcetti character saying, you know, uh, we have a, a strict stay-at-home order, and he follows it up in writing and, and said it. But if you are homeless, you don't have to stick to the stay-at-home order. And I think to myself, who would say that? Who would – I mean, where does it – who are the people in the room that can come up with that stuff? Walking is now illegal. Bicycling is now illegal. 
Who is looking? And I've said, and it's look, it's just not Democratic mayors either. I was critical of Trump and, no. and some of the people around him when, look, when we when we come unlocked, and you you you've got these. Uh, Restaurants that can't make money, they have to have at least 80% occupancy to make money, maybe even 90%. I mean, uh, these smaller ones. And, and they, it, the, the Trump administration or our administration kept them only open to 25%. And then if they did well, 50%. It was like, what kind of Stockholm syndrome are we in here where you're actually thanking them for letting you die slower, if you get my drift? Yeah, because the virus is the virus. It's going to get around. And I always, I always, when I think about what's going on here, I'm, you know, I'm 54. I'll be 55 next year. I'm a child of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I remember how people used the AIDS virus, how they used a virus that then had a 100% fatality rate to shame people's behavior, to try and control their behavior, to gain political uh, uh, points over a virus. And what we ended up doing was the right thing in this country. We educated people. We said, okay, this is how you can catch the virus. These are the, these are the behaviors you, you should avoid. And then we trusted people to assess the risks and decide whether or not they wanted to take those risks. That was with a 100% fatality rate. <laughs> the coronavirus has a 99.6% survival rate, and it seems like it's pretty hard to catch and we have all these spikes all over the place, even though pretty much everyone's wearing masks, which just tells me masks probably aren't very effective. People should be allowed to take whatever risks they want. If, if I'm wearing a condom, I don't care if you wear a condom or not. If I'm wearing a mask, I don't care if you wear a mask. If I'm social distancing, why should I care if you social distance? But that's not what we're doing. It's the same thing that we did to homosexuals, or some people did to homosexuals in the 80s. We're using this to control people's behavior that we don't like, and we're shaming them, and we're telling them they caused the virus. They're the cause, not the virus, but they're the cause of the virus because they they dared to get together on Thanksgiving. And it's just, it's bigotry. It's bigotry against normal Americans. It's naked fascism, and there's no science backing it up whatsoever. It makes no sense. It's just plain old bullying. Yeah, it's, and it's all for the optics, right? We're here for you. And, you know, again, that mask debate. Look, I'm, I'm not a jerk. I'll wear a mask if you want me to wear a mask. I'm not trying to, you know, make a huge point. But, you know, if you look, at, the in, look at that little tag on the inside of your mask that says this is not a, a, a health protect, you know, protective advi- device. This is not going to help you. Um, it just looks good, right? So um, all these masks that everybody's got on with the bandanas tied around your neck and, uh, and the likes, it's just optics. It's just going to make you feel better, you know, and that's, that, that, to me, that's what the, that drives me crazy is that, you know, I, I got angry about the, the, the Russian uh, buying ads on Facebook. Why are you automatically assuming I can be swayed by ads on Facebook paid for by the Russians? It's insulting to me, right? So uh, this this whole optical issue that we have here is, is probably been one of the bigger frustrating things to me, and, and I think that uh, you've hit the nail right on the head with that. So, And it's creating a the worst thing you can give an economy, which is uncertainty, because there's no consistency. There's no consistency to it either. You can, I mean, abortion clinics are open, liquor stores are open, pot dispensaries are open, Walmart's open. Who's got the? But you can't have your little mom and pop store open. Why is a Walmart safer than my restaurant? Why is a Walmart safer than my bar? Why can Hollywood stay in business, but I can't? There's no consistency. It's just pure naked persecution. And when there's no consistency. And when it's persecution, when it's not based on anything, there's no foundation. You create uncertainty. And people are looking at this and they're going, 
I don't. I, my governor could shut me down tomorrow. Right. I can't expand. I'm not going to hire someone. And that's well, that's obviously what's happening here. We're going to ask you to come back. One thing is for certain, we've got a hard break. But if you hang on right there, we'll be right back with John Nolte. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. Uh, this is The Dan Proft Show, or to The Dan Proft Show. I'm Scott Shelley, uh, and I am lucky enough to have with me the editor-at-large of Breitbart. That's uh, John Nolte. We're talking about just the random happenstance of some of these uh, lockdown orders from one business to the next. And, I, and John, to your point, I think that's where a lot of Americans fell off the wagon about, hey, you know what, I'll give this a shot. I, I'm, I, we're in it for the collegial try, you know, college, give it the old college try. But when you've got, you know, I travel a lot for my business, and I was on planes that were absolute Petri dishes. I mean, we were shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. And then I, but I get off the plane, I get to the hotel and the hotel has got an elevator that's 10 foot by 10 foot. And there's a sign that says only two people at a time. I mean, right. Right. There's no consistency. Right. Right. I mean, what, nothing, nothing makes sense. What planet Why am I on? Walmart safe? Yeah. Why is Walmart safe, but not a school? It's just crazy. Not, none of it makes sense. I mean, and it has nothing to do with safety. It has to do with the teachers unions are lazy. They don't want to go back to work. That's all it is. And, and you, it, there's no, you can't, there's no consistency. You can't count on it. And if you can't count on it, there's, there's, there's uncertainty. And nothing kills the economy like uncertainty. And you're right. And so I and I've I've written articles for this in a newspaper I write for every now and again. But you know, let, these governors have been beating up these restaurateurs and not these poor people. They should have probably organized themselves a lot better, a lot sooner. But you know, I'm going to take your liquor license away if you if you disobey, right? And I, you know, apparently, these liquor licenses are very difficult and expensive to get. Um, but here's been my argument the entire time. Let's just say for just for you know the, for you know, talking sake that these liquor licenses are a hundred bucks a month, twelve hundred bucks for the year, and you've got me shut down for five months. Do mm-hmm. I get a five hundred dollar rebate back? Do I get five hundred bucks back? I mean, you yeah, you maybe pay for something that I can't use. That's like that's illegal. I mean, that's stealing it yeah. for me. It's the takings clause. It should be part of the takings clause in, in in the Constitution. And something else we're seeing is, and this is my my guess is two things are going to happen. When, when the real history of this is written, two things we're going to discover. Number one, we're going to discover the death rate didn't go up all that much. I'm not calling the coronavirus a hoax, but we're going to discover the death rate didn't go up. All I that agree much with you. Because a lot of people died with the coronavirus, not because of it. The other thing we're going to discover, and, and, and I should say the CDC released something that said that and then pulled it off the Internet. Yeah, it was from John Hopkins. Yeah, or John Hopkins, that's right. Yeah. So, so there's already a study that shows it. The other thing we're going to discover is that this is going to be the last nine months, 10 months, however long this ends up being, it's going to end up being the biggest, largest, most mammoth jaw-dropping transfer of wealth from the middle and working class to the top 1%, to the Walmarts and the Amazons, because they are the ones, the, the Netflixes, they are the ones cleaning up. They are the ones, all they're vacuuming up, all the money, because everything is closed. All the small guys are closed. Yep. The people are buying their exercise machines from Amazon. This is going to be the biggest transfer of wealth anyone has ever seen, and it's all going to the technocrats. It's 
all going to our overlords and the multinational corporations. It makes me it makes me sad to hear you say that, but I, I've written about it too. You're exactly right, and and part of the reason is is that our you know America was built on the backs of these small entrepreneurs and, and these small businesses, right? What which one of those small businesses do you know in your travels that has the ability to weather ten month shutdown? Who's got that in their business yeah, plan? No. If you're a small business, nobody. Nobody. These these restaurants need to be be you know ninety percent full to make money, and for for the government to come out and say you know we'll let you open up to twenty five percent and then we're supposed to kiss the ring. That's like Stockholm syndrome. I mean, stop it. And I don't. This is where I get really, and you can tell I get really frustrated because we're giving the people at the top more money and taking from the people at the bottom because of these rules of that are only going to enrich the people that had the money to begin with. Because they can suffer yeah. through, through these turndowns. Yeah, they the, the people who can afford, like the teachers' unions, they can afford to stay home and right. watch Netflix. Right. But the people that are out there struggling, it's uh, it's just unkind. And it's not just that we it's not just that we're supposed to sit back and go bankrupt. We're supposed to pledge fealty to the mask fascists. We're supposed to pledge fealty to the lockdown Nazis. If we even complain, you know, we're we're super spreaders. If we right. even complain, and I and I go back to the AIDS analogy. It was the exact same thing. People using a, a virus to blame other people, to shame other people, to, to, to control them to, because they didn't like their lifestyle. And, and, and that's exactly what's happening now. It's no different whatsoever. And so, you know, you're, you're a, a, a smart kid or you want to open up your own business, but why would, why would anybody want to get out, the, take the second mortgage out and dump their 401k into a great idea to open up their, a business where the government could just shut you down with a light switch. It's not going to, I mean, that's going to retard business growth from here on out. There's going to be some psychological damage that we can't even, you know, the only people that can handle this are the big box stores. I keep saying this and chain restaurants. I mean, Main Street USA is just going to be bed, bath and a burger. That's it. There's going to be no, you know, nothing, nothing to celebrate about that. So, uh, we, uh, hopefully you can stick around. We have one more segment. Uh, we'd like to come back with John Nolte. He's editor at Larger Breakpoint. This is the Dan Proft Show. Well, welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'm Scott Shelley, otherwise known as a cow guy. We've been lucky to have with us the editor at large of Breitbart, John Nolte. We were just talking uh, before the last break about uh, what kind of businesses in America can handle um, uh, a shutdown for whatever, five months, six months. I mean, who's got that in their business plan? And, you know, I've, I've likened the fact that, uh, John, that it's like um, we've locked the American entrepreneur in the back of a, uh, a, a, you know, in a trunk for, for six hot months. And when we finally let him out, instead of him punching us in the face, he, they've kissed us and they're thankful. It's like Stockholm syndrome, right? It's, for some reason, there hasn't been the uprising that I would have thought would have ha- happened sooner. Now it's starting to happen. We start, we're starting to see people defy orders like we've talked about earlier. But I'm just surprised that it took so long because these poor restaurants in, in, in New York and San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, I mean, there's – some damage here that's going to take a long time to get back from. And number two is this, I keep saying this, psychologically, nobody really knows how bad it's going to be because we're not going back to the way it was, right? Normal's gone. Maybe we'll get back to some semblance of normal, but I've said this before, you know, you're not going into that small, quaint New York, London restaurant where you're almost touching, you know, shoulder to shoulder, the couple, you know, the table for two next to you. 
I, I, I think that's going to be a long time off before that starts happening again. I'm, obviously, it will at some point in time, maybe. But I think that normalcy as we know it is a long way off. And I think, too, we're going to see people are going to be saying 10 years from now, do I really want to open a restaurant? Do I really want to open a business? Because if I do, what if there's something like the coronavirus again? They're just going to shut me down. And what we might see, and this would kind of be justice if you think about it, is these blue states, these blue state fanatics, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Illinois. New Mexico, California, you're going to see an exodus. And we're seeing it now. But you're going to see an exodus of just good, decent, normal people who have dreams leaving and going and going to states and saying, okay, in Wyoming, I can do this. In North Dakota, South Dakota, I can do this. I can't do this in Michigan because that woman's insane. I can't do this in Pennsylvania. And the other thing, and the other thing I think people see is that this very same people who it's like, it's like global warming. The very same people who tell us the coronavirus is deadly and serious do not behave themselves as though they believe the coronavirus is deadly and serious because we catch them. We catch these Democrats over and over again, ignoring their own rules, which tells me that they don't believe the coronavirus is all that serious. And that also it's like it's like global warming. Barack Obama and CNN tell us global warming is going to happen and the oceans are going to rise. And what do they do? They both move right on the ocean. Exactly right. right so that's that's the other thing that people are seeing is that these Democrats don't believe it. They're just being they're just persecuting normal people for their for their for their donors in the top one percent. That's all that they're persecuting. They know small business owners are by and large right leaning, and these people hate us. And this is just naked persecution. Do you have a do you have a, a, a picture of the grand plan? I mean, what where 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 are they taking us? Where do you think this is going? I, I just think it's. I think this is just revenge right now. I don't know what they're going to do after this. I don't, I have no idea, but I think it's going to shake out in a way. This is still a free country. This is going to shake out in a way where this has just been revenge. This was about hurting Trump. This was about winning the election. That's what these lockdowns were about. But going forward, I think cities like New York and Los Angeles and California overall and states like uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania, I think they're going to be very hurt by the exodus of normal people that are going to say, even if you don't own a business, I cannot live in a 400 square foot apartment for nine months. I can't do that. I, you know, I don't even have a porch. I don't right. even have a yard. Right. I'm stuck in this box. And I think you're going to see, I think that's what's going to happen. And in the long run, they're going to be punished for it. And hopefully some of those people will come to North Carolina where I live <laughs> because we're kind of a purple state and they would turn us red. And that I would love, I'd love to see that happen. Well, you know, I I I, uh, I enjoy the fact that I, I have two places, one in Arizona, right next to California, which is just seen in a tremendous increase in value because of so many people coming over the border from yep. California fleeing. And then at the same time, I, I'm I'm in Indiana and I'm in Rust Belt country, up by you know ArcelorMittal and and British Petroleum. But even those areas have been seeing a big bump in prices because of all the people that have been fleeing Illinois with their hair on fire, and and. To, to your point um, and to my feelings, really, is that I'll, you know, I'll never understand how anybody can think that those are good policies. I mean, what they've done to the average working person, and some of these people are trapped. I think you'd agree. They can't leave, right? They're, that, and they're the ones that are going to be absolutely destroyed. But what, what, where do they get off thinking that 
you know, keeping the kids at home forever is a good idea or keeping all these restaurants closed forever is a good idea. Now, I know you, you've said it's retribution. It's trying to get back at Trump. But it's not like you can just flip the switch and everything's going to be okay again. There's collateral damage that takes a long time to get over. But leftists, I'm not talking about Democrats, overall Democrats. I'm just talking about leftists, these, these powerful, these mad, these power mad people. They don't care about consequences. Their whole thing is it's okay to break a few, la- a few eggs because I'm going to get my omelet. They don't that's care more about like legs, too, by the way. Yeah, yeah, more like, yeah. That, that's, they, don't, they just don't care about it. They don't care about normal people. They just see the utopia. And if, you know, look at how many people Stalin killed to get his utopia and, and Pol Pot and, and Mao. They don't care about any of that. So that's, that's, that's the way that they look at it. And the teachers' unions are just lazy. They don't want to go to work. And we should, get our, we should get our money back. Home. We should get our money back from that, too. I mean, all the people that have been paying yep. to have your kids in school. And to let them say, you know, look, I mean, uh, without being a, a fanatical person, I, they've taken your children away because they have now begun to be the parent and they are now making the decisions what they believe, just like they know how to spend your money better than you do, just like they know how to keep you, you, you healthier th- than you, know, you do. Now they know what's better for your kid than you do. I mean, to me, what, what, what's left to take over in my life? They've taken over my children, they've taken over my health, and they've taken over my money. What's, what's left? Yeah, it's, it's now... It's now a situation where Americans have to opt out. You used to have to opt in for stuff like that, and now you have to opt out. You have to say, you know what, I'm going to homeschool, and, and I'm going to join a I'm going to join a healthcare uh, co-op, which I did, and and things like that. Um, and they're just making it harder and harder. They're cornering us, you know, and you could feel yourself slowly being cornered into where they just take over everything, and you escape a little here and escape a little there. And there's still private schools, but how long are those going to be around? Right. And, there's still these co-ops, and how long are those going to be around? But, yeah, it's, uh, it's tightening. You can feel it, and it's, it's dispiriting. Well, I tell you, I would love to sit around and talk to you a lot more about this for hours and hours to come, but I probably my, my head would explode. But, anyway, we've got our break. John, <laughs> I, I really appreciate you coming on. John Nolte is the editor-at-large of Breitbart. We've gotten through some things, but uh, still lots more out there. Uh, maybe you'll come back and see us sometime. Yeah, my pleasure. Merry Christmas, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, I'm Scott Shelley. I'm not Dan Prof. Dan's a good dude, but uh, I'm sitting in for Dan while he's away gallivanting around the, the, the globe. But I, uh, I'm the cow guy. You see me on Fox Business News. I used to do CNN, but for some reason, my right-leaning politics kind of got me off of that one. But anyway, I, I do the rounds and talk about uh, public policy and the likes and the economy. And one of the things that's really gotten – I wrote an article in the Northwest Indiana Times this week about um, global warming. And, you know, given the choice, Americans, American corporations have really stepped up. And even though we've pulled ourselves out of the – or Trump pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accord – um, and everybody was you know, up in arms and their hair on fire about how, you know, we don't want clean water. We don't want clean air. It's actually the opposite. We've done very well on our own without having been told what to do by the nanny state, um, which actually probably infuriates those on the left even more. But uh, Americans have done better than they've ever done uh, corporate-wise and, and, and individually as far as uh, looking after our own climate here. And to put us into something that was going to throw the American worker, I think, under the – 
another boss to let China and India continue to do what they wanted to do for a, a time. It's just patently unfair, and and but that's the the world we're in. So I, and and for those that are, look, the, the, we can all agree that the climate does change, right? I think the big debate is why. And I'll say this: I talk to a lot of the smartest guys in the world because of the business I'm in. And there's lakefront homes, oceanfront homes, of which Obama just bought one himself. Um, uh, and if he, again, that's to the point. What I was making is if he was that worried about climate control or climate change and the ice caps melting uh, and large parts of Florida and California underwater. Why was he, why did he go out and buy a place on the, on the water? All right. Does anybody not see the, the, the hypocrisy? And as long as the banks out there that, I mean, they're the last people that want to lose money. Right. And at some point in time, they, 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 you know, get rid of their risk. And, but somebody's always there to take the risk of writing mortgages on property on the water. So I, I'm, I'm here to tell you that <laughs> the first place that you're going to see climate change come up, if it's real, or no, not if it's real, it, it, the climate's changing. But if, if it's really about the U.S. and the, or the, the, the human beings melting the ice caps, not the U.S., but around the world, it will show up in the 30-year mortgage market because no one will be able to get one because it's actually happening. But right now, people are still willing to take the risk, people mean banks or underwriters, of writing a 30-year mortgage on shoreline property on the ocean. So if those people care about losing their money more than anything else in this world, and if they're happy to put, put their money at risk on, on, on oceanfront properties for 30 years, by mind you, I think that we have to kind of take a look at ourselves and remind ourselves of what these people have been saying since 1970 about the world's going to you know, implode. That it's just probably um, that'll be a great place to see it happen when it finally does. But as long as they're still willing to risk their own money for 30 years on oceanfront property, climate change, or at least the climate change they're talking about, is probably still pretty far away from the corner. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. I'm Scott Shelley in for Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. I'm otherwise known as the cow guy. Um, as corny as that may sound, but uh, I wore a black and white jacket before. Commenting on the on the business news, uh, mostly Fox Business, which will tell you that I'm probably a little bit right leaning. But anyway, we'll 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 get to the bottom of that soon here. But what I'd like to do is introduce our next guest, uh, James Bovard. James is uh, the author of ten books, uh, member of the USA Today board of contributors, a frequent contributor to the Hill, and a contributing editor for the, the American Conservative. I'd like to welcome James to the show and. We can just jump right in on some of these COVID regulations. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. No, no problem. It's I was able to read uh, what you penned, um, and uh, very interesting. And I, I'll just say this: I mean, you probably already know where I stand, uh, but uh, what's been happening to us since March of this year is it's just been nothing less than um, I don't know, uh, stupendous when it comes to how badly things have been handled, if you ask me. But um, your thoughts, Loco Moco, what, what, are you, uh, what, what are you thinking? 
Well, I'm writing about, Mon- uh, uh, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is the most liberal county in Maryland, which is a, a democratic state. And Montgomery County has been doing one stupid thing after another since the pandemic started. Uh, back in August, um, the, the county shut down the schools back in March. In August, the Catholic and Jewish and other private schools were getting ready to reopen, but the county health czar, health czar dictated that they had to shut down because um, there was a, a tiny chance that someone might get sick, basically. The governor, Hogan, a Republican governor here, overturned the county, and the, and the private schools are doing great, but the public schools are, are still shut down. And uh, last Thursday, the, uh, the government finally admitted that the uh, so-called distance learning has been a uh, facade. There's been an over 500% increase in the number of black students failing mathematics, 600% increase in the uh, number of Hispanic students failing. And this is here in a, in a county that's always bragging about how it's going to close the achievement gap. But this is, the, this is the worst thing that happened to black students since the end of uh, school segregation almost 50 years ago here, 60 years ago. There was something, too, written about Chicago because of the students that were now not remote learning, but just out on the street. The number of deaths of those under the age of 19 has just skyrocketed. Something like oh, really? Something like 109 deaths from 19 years old and under which normally would have been not to say that the deaths took place during school hours, but right, that right. these people just, these kids were just unhinged is probably too strong of a word, but they were just, uh, they had no rudder, put it that way, right? We didn't have the the regiment of school and having to do homework and the things to be that you have to be accountable for in your average everyday life as a student. So it's interesting to see how this is affecting all types of, of students. And then obviously the suicide rate and those things that uh, has also skyrocketed. And, I, you know, uh, when, when you have, um, I wrote about this in March of this year, I, I was on a rant on television where I said, you know, you don't have a market if you don't have an economy. And you don't have a, a health care system yeah. if you don't have it. I mean, the poorest, the, the, you know, poor countries uh, have poor health care. Rich countries have great health care. I mean, that's just the way it is. And so by damaging our economy, like the government did, you know, whether you're Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. That has a knock-on effect to the health of its constituency. And then on top of that, you take these kids out of school where, I, I don't know about you, James, but we, we were all worried about everybody's safe. Everything's done in the, the guise of safety nowadays. And, and we we didn't want these kids going back to school because we wanted to keep everybody safe. But now, even when... You've got mainstream media talking about, uh, you know, shattering records as far as spikes and cases and rises and this and just trying to still scare you with the hyperbole. They're sending kids back to school because they just can't ignore the number. They can't ignore the facts anymore. And the facts are that these kids are safer there. Yep. Yep. Uh, uh, There are some places that are sending the kids back. Other places are not uh, around here. They aren't. Uh, But it's it's interesting that the that the liberal politicians whose policies have done so much to devastate uh, low-income and minority students here, uh, that's not going to stop them for a moment from preaching about, again, next year closing the achievement gap. They'll probably claim, well, you know, the achievement gap got bigger, so we need a property tax increase in order to close it. Um, they've been promising to close it for over 40 years, and it's as big as ever right now, I think. Uh, but it's just it's sad to see that the media has been so docile for the most point. Complicit. For the most part. 
Uh, it hasn't looked at, you know, it's simply taken politicians at their word. It, it has joined the, the fear-mongering. Um, that's one of the things that strikes me around here is that, you know, people, um, there's an old saying that, that people learn to hate what they fear. And there's been so much fear-mongering and there's instant hatred here of anybody who doesn't comply with the latest edict. It doesn't matter if it's a stupid edict that says, says your face mask now has to cover your chin. You know, it doesn't make any sense. But uh, folks are just, you know, folks, folks are clinging to, to the hope that government is going to save them. It doesn't matter how many dumb things the government does. And, you know, it's, it's funny. There was a time in March, April, maybe even May-ish, when you heard that somebody came down with the coronavirus, the, the, the oxygen would leave the room with a gasp of people like, oh, you know, oh, my gosh. But, you know, as, as time has gone on and we've realized that uh, depending, and I'll say you're under the age of 60, you have a 99.96% chance of, of, of surviving the virus, um, or uh, we don't see the, the air leave the room when we talk about University of Maryland having to cancel a football game because a couple of kids on the, on the university team came down with COVID. Um, we all just assume that the kids will be on the field next week and they'll just be fine, right? So we've, we've come a long way when it comes to um, fearing the virus, but it ha- doesn't seem like any of the rules have changed along the way when we've come to know what we're dealing with more, right? So, yeah, we should have people be a little bit looked after more in these um, – old folks homes or places where older people can gather but at the same time if bars are smart and and, and schools are smart if, if if menards can do it so can the small pizza joint around the corner everybody should be able to make their own decisions and choices given the information and go on with life and hey yep. if you don't want to get sick i got an idea don't go outside if you don't want to get in a car accident, I got an idea. Don't drive a car. I mean, sometimes common sense rules the day, and it seems like we've tried to take that away so that we can control people. Yep. Well, there was a, uh, one of my favorite sayings from Thoreau was, a man sits as many risks as he runs. And uh, this is something that's been forgotten by these policymakers who assume that uh, lockdowns are going to have a net benefit and simply, you know, it, it's definitely not double entry bookkeeping because they simply exclude all the damage. And one of the biggest damage is the loss of freedom and the loss of the sense of freedom. Uh, there's a lot of things I disagree with Attorney General uh, Bill Barr on, but Barr was uh, called it right when he said that these massive lockdowns are the biggest violations of civil liberties in America since the end of slavery in 1865. So. Um, but it's, it's almost never framed that way. Instead, it's the, the, uh, you know, the people who want to step outside are called selfish and, you know, you know grandma killers. Do you, do you think America has become soft? I mean, <laughs> well, that's a rough question. Oh, that's a rough one. I know it is. And I'm, 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 I'm hesitant. I, okay. I'll tell you what, I'll go on there. I say it has. All right. So I'm 55 years old. My, my grandfather fought in world war two. And I sometimes feel now that, you know, We've got kids hiding underneath the desk in fear of getting a virus that's got a 99.97% chance of you know, surviving. But I, I, I can't help. I, I've got a British passport. I lived in England for 16 years, and all I've got is the picture of those kids, the, 20-year-old, the 18 to 20-year-old kids getting off those, those people movers in the middle of the water, uh, you know, rushing the, be- the beaches of Normandy. I mean, we're, we're, well, we're, we're, we, we, we can't assess. The risk assessment is so different nowadays. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, folks, uh, it's it's almost as if people's common sense has been schooled out of them, uh, both by the government schools and by the media. 
Uh, and, you know, during the presidential campaign, you had Joe Biden consistently overstating the number of COVID fatalities by a hundredfold or a thousandfold. And, and the media would say, oh, well, you know, that's just a glitch. That's a slip. No, it was, it happened again and again. It was a huge, you know, the, um, there was a lot of fear mongering, uh, basically to try to blame Trump for everyone that died from COVID. That's <laughs> right. like, you know, you know, Trump made a lot of mistakes, but, uh, and, and there were a lot of mistakes with the administration's COVID response. But the whole idea that somebody else would have done it perfectly is nonsense because you look at a lot of the Western European countries that were a lot more aggressive, and they've still gotten walloped with huge death rates. Right, and we're going to take a quick break. But before we go, I, you know, I wanted to be like Lucy and have a little psychological stand. I can give out advice, right? And for today's youth, or at least the, the, the folks like 20 to 35, I would say, I would like you to go watch, um, you know, Hacksaw Ridge eight times, followed up by two Cinderella Mans, and then once you've seen those, uh, you'll feel, you'll really understand what real risk is. So, uh, stay right there, James. We'll be right back after the break. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show okay well welcome back to the dan proft show i'm scott Sheldy, otherwise known as the cow guy we've been lucky to have with us uh, james bovard he's the author of 10 books uh he's a member of the usa today board of contributors a frequent contributor to the hill and a contributing editor for the American Conservative. We've been talking everything, COVID regulations, uh, and, and especially James has got something in his own backyard with, I think you said, Montgomery County. Um, but uh, interesting to see how I say that this is going to scar Americans for a while here. We've got a, we've got some pretty big damage that's been done to the American psyche. What do you think? Yeah, there's damage to the psyche. There, there's damage to the economy. There's damage... Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of hidden damage to people's health, both physical and mental. Um, but perhaps, perhaps the greatest damage will be if people um, um, are taught from this that they have to trust government to save them, <laughs> and that um, you know, and that people need to be uh, to give more deference to the local bureaucrats and the enforcement officers, and 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 any tin horn politician who tells them that their freedom is going to kill their neighbor. I mean, to see the to see how the demagoguery has succeeded in this, and I also want to make clear that I'm not someone who says it's just a common cold. This stuff, it, uh, this is a virus that can be very dangerous. Um, folks, folks need to be more cautious than they were before, but that might mean simply staying away from groups and avoiding handshaking. So, and staying away from elderly groups and elderly hands. groups. I mean, and, there, there's uh, some things that are pretty commonsensical and. Yeah, and and if I just feel like we never get the full story, right? Because when <laughs> yeah, that's, that's putting it kindly. Yeah, right. So in you know in the middle of the summer when uh, Italy was the hotbed of the coronavirus globally, right? If you remember that, uh-huh. and then when it finally finally came out that the average age of death was eighty. Now yep. I'm not 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 to make you know light of anybody that dies, even if they're eighty. But at the same time, that that would have been useful information when you were telling me it's the hot spot of the world. Well, it, it it would have been something I'm always hearing from politicians around here is that uh, 
that every dictate that they issue is sacrosanct because because they're the ones that rely on data and science. However, most of the data is crap, and the science changes every two to three weeks. And we've had so many flip-flops in the scientific guidance. It's like, um, as you said, better to go with common sense, simple precautions. Uh, you know, pay attention, pay attention to your health as well. But, you know, the, the whole idea that there is this class of wise people who are so much smarter that, that they deserve dictatorial power over everybody else, that's something that this pandemic should have disproved. However, that's not the lesson the media is drawing. No, we've gone, we've all fallen asleep and gone into this deep, like, Stockholm syndrome, right, where, you know, people are suddenly allowed out of their houses and they're, they're thanking people for that, right? When we're not even sure oh, that you're a hero. Yeah, yeah right. You're a hero. We're not even sure that it was legal in the first place, but we're still, now we're calling you a hero on something that might be illegal with these 30-day orders. I mean, to me, it's just been, you know, I, I started off by saying, uh, and people, I was roundly criticized, when, when we had these counties across the country that were kind of coming out of lockdown, right? So one county uh-huh. would come out of lockdown and there would be another county that was still kind of locked down. And I said, never in my, I'm 55 years old, and never in my wildest dreams did I ever think in my America, on one side of the street, a haircut and a burger was legal, and the other side of the street, it wasn't. And people said that that was inflammatory then. It's oh, only really? Got, it's only gotten oh, 10 my. times worse now, right? Because wow. And the only way that you can have a bunch of people around at your, your Thanksgiving dinner is to make sure that you make reservations for 12 at Menards, uh, you know, at 7 o'clock at night. Then, then all That's of a sudden a the virus won't, won't, won't be there because the coronavirus is very smart. It only comes out after 10 o'clock at night, so you can drink until 10, and as long as you go home, you're not going to get sick. I mean, these draconian, these measures are not only draconian, they are... They're, they're fanciful. I mean, they're just, it's a, they're, 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 it's a joke. And, and, I, and I think that's where a lot of Americans really fall off the wagon with it. I agree. Uh, there, was a, uh, there was a story which uh, I did a couple of weeks ago for, for the Libertarian Institute looking at some of the guidance that some of the uh, local and state health departments have given people uh, for sexual practices during the <laughs> pandemic. And it was, a lot of it's really bizarre. And, you know, I probably shouldn't go to it on this family-oriented program. <laughs> well, we can only use our imaginations, but you know, you we talked about, uh, or I've talked about um, with with Garcetti, uh, you know, with the new orders that he just instituted out in California, Los Angeles, and yeah, bizarre, utterly bizarre, banning walking and bicycling. I mean, just yeah, I, uh, that's to, and then the the last one that got me. I don't know, me people aren't really. I guess they don't think it's as big of a deal as I do. But when he actually put it in writing and spoke it, that. Um, the stay-at-home order is goes into effect, you know, X date at this time. Obviously, those that are homeless don't have to abide by the stay-at-home order. I thought, is that a joke? I mean, are you? Do who? Did he actually think he had to say that? I mean, is and this is where you to, to your point. You you almost said it. You were a lot nicer about it than I would have been. But all of a sudden, we're supposed to think that these guys are the smartest guys in the room. I mean, well, that's yeah. I mean, because well, I don't know about you. I got out of University of Colorado finance degree. All the smart guys in my class got good jobs and made decent money. And then uh-huh. the rest of them, maybe they went and canvassed for their local aldermen and all of a sudden they're running for president. Who knows? But I tell you what, had they been able to get those jobs, they would have, and they would not have gone into politics. And now we're deferring to these guys that couldn't get the good job 35 years ago. That's what drives me crazy. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I talk about uh, dumb regulations. The, the, uh, there was a similar regulation they issued here in Montgomery County saying that people had to wear a mask anytime they were outside 
and there was some controversy. So what they did is issue a clarification and said that if someone is driving in their car by themselves, they don't need to wear a mask. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, well, the, okay, I can you sleep know, now. I can sleep now. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, and the folks who are writing these regulations are probably getting at least one hundred and thirty, hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, uh, and it's like you know. Um, okay. Uh, that's what I don't I, know. Yeah, Americans need to question some stuff and some stuff more often, and that's one of them. And I'll say this: you know, uh, when we had these uh, restaurants come out of lockdown, and and I, I was equally as critical of Trump and his administration, but, but uh-huh. these restaurants need ninety percent capacity to make money. By saying that you can open up to twenty five percent capacity, just telling them you're going to go out of business slower. Yep. I mean, yep. and I said to then, and I'll still say, I want to be in the room. Where these eighty-year-old guys are sitting around thinking, then that's an okay rule. Fifty percent's not an okay rule. Either you're open or you're not. And guess what? By the way, for those governments that are broke, ours is one of them. It, the best stimulus package, the best checks we could ever cut, is just open up the economy and let people make their own minds up. If they don't want to yep. get sick, don't go outside, or don't see anybody else that's been outside. How about that? That's called democracy, common sense. Walk away if you don't like it, or engage if you do. I don't know where. We lost the ability to think like that. Well, I mean, there, there, there are a lot of people who are able to think and have seen through the BS and uh, are outraged. But to see how the media has vilified people who have protested the lockdowns, I mean, it's like they're a bunch of, uh, you know, murderers, yeah. uh, a bunch of knuckle dragging, uh, you know, boneheads. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I mean, or, or they're, and they're bringing all of our health uh, in, in, you know, they're risking our hells by by not you know by defying these orders, and it's just absolutely insane. It really is, and and that's that's the way they want to frame it so that they can beat you up because it's that cancel culture that kind of encompasses everything, and that's how they get people to acquiesce and follow the rules. Yep, there are some days I almost become cynical. Yeah, <laughs> right. So I mean, it's 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 thoughts like that that keep us all going, and I really appreciate James coming on. Again, James uh, Boulevard, author of uh, 10 books, member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, a frequent contributor to The Hill, and a contributing editor for the American Conservative. Thank you very much, James. It's been great. Hey, thanks. I enjoyed that. All righty. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Well, welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I am not Dan Proft, as you can probably tell. I am Scott Shelley, otherwise known as the cow guy. You can catch me on a lot of the cable news channels talking about the economy public policy and all the things that kind of make our minds work when we're trying to sleep at night. Um, but I've I got a, another guest here today, which I'm really excited about having on. His name's John Tamney. Uh, he's the editor of Real Clear uh, Markets, director of the Center of, uh, for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, and the author of The End of Work, Why Your Passion Has Become Your Job. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Oh, great. I'm, this is, this is, I've been looking forward to this. You know, um, boy, what a world we, we live in today. Uh, if <laughs> It's like the weather, but it changes even more often than that. And you've got some things out that are interesting to me, obviously, because you know that I've got a financial background. But um, one of the things you've just recently wrote, written about is the Dow Jones Industrial Average at 30,000. The Fed did it. Narrative grows even sillier. Um, can you kind of expound upon that and tell me what you're thinking there? 
Well, what I'm thinking there is that there's just no evidence supporting the claim that the Fed can manipulate markets uh, to achieve good times and rising prices. If that were true, then GE wouldn't be a fraction of its price that it was in, in the year 2000 when it was the world's most valuable company. Right. It's, all, it, it's also true that Enron would still be around. Um, it's also true, remember when the year 2000 hit, the two most dominant internet companies were Yahoo and AOL. Mm-hmm. What have you heard from them recently? Right. The reason stocks are so high is because the, some of the most innovative companies in the world are based in the United States. The S&P 500 is market cap weighted, and so the big driver of Dow 30,000 is the fact that the Apple is the most valuable company in the world. And that the five most valuable companies in the world are, are Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Microsoft. If you remove those, the rally wasn't nearly as great. And so when we say that the Fed did this, oh yeah, thank the Fed for this, we're basically saying, and, and so many people on our side say it, we're basically saying what Obama said, oh yeah, you didn't build that. Right. It's, it's just as obnoxious. It presumes that there's no ingenuity in the United States, that, that American companies are just are, – are, are just, uh, Boosted by a central bank. Funny how it doesn't happen around the world. Right. And and had you know, I lived abroad sixteen years. I lived in London. And if you've lived outside of this country for a significant amount of time, you can really tell the difference. And the like you just said, the word ingenuity, the the difference of the American freedom to come up with ideas, see a problem and solve a problem, and then benefit from it. And it's almost like sometimes we even catch ourselves here when it comes to, say, even like the likes of Jeff Bezos. We have some of people that want to punish those people for the successes that they've done, uh, they've had, because they've come up with a solution or a better idea or a, simply a, a better mousetrap. And I think that really sets America apart from uh, a lot of the other places around the world, you know, especially the the Far East, because I think you know we come up with a great idea and then they try to make it cheaper and, and make it a little bit more easier to afford. But I, I still think, with at least my financial background, that uh, America is the place for those mental freedoms, not just financial freedoms, but where you can really do well because you've come up with a solution to a problem that's been there for a long time. Yep, there's no doubt that the U.S. is the most economically unequal country on earth, and I say that as a compliment to it. Um, That's why it's historically attracted the world's poorest. Poor people understand what idiot economists and politicians don't, that where there's inequality, where there's ingenuity, where there's innovation, that's where opportunity is greatest. And so that's why we've always been a magnet for those with the least. They realize that in the United States, this is where you can be whatever you want to be, and it doesn't matter uh, what, what you were when you were born. And so um, it's a very exciting thing. I think too often both sides pretend like the U.S. is some is, is seeing its, its, its final great days, that somehow a Paul, Joe Biden can ruin us or Donald Trump can ruin us. I think both sides insult this great nation. Um, if, if, if people like that could, could, could wreck it, uh, it, the U.S. wouldn't be worth saving. But I, I think we both agree um, it is worth saving, it's, it, it beca- and it's, it, it doesn't need to be saved. It's, it's already amazing. Well, and – you know, again, I, I'll say this. I've said that on, on this, this on the show before. Is you know, I come from an agrarian background. My my father had a farm, and, and we still have a farm. But you know, it's really it's great to see. Like, hey, there's a seed goes in the ground, something grows, you cut it, you you know, you produce it, you get it to market. It, that's, I mean, that's a little bit different thing. Different than say, <clears throat> uh, all the guys at Starbucks on their laptops that don't really understand the derivation of some where of these things that they're eating and drinking come from. And I and I think that. Um, with what we've got, well, how do I say this right? Our economy, um, 
And the way that we've got that open minded of thinking has been really the, the, the reason that we've saved ourselves this long. And that's why we have walls, because we're not keep we don't have walls to keep people in. Right. We have walls to keep people out because there's still people that want to come here. Now, regardless of what you think about walls, um, the, the, you know, my wife's an immigrant, right? That she knows the exceptionalism of this country, and that's why these people are trying to get in, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. So I, I think people really should, should uh, to learn that lesson. So we're about to take a quick break here. John, if you can hang with me, we'll be right back after the break. Oh, I Okay, welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. I'm Scott Shelley. We're speaking with John Tamney. We almost rudely interrupted him at the break the last time around. We've got some more time here to talk about what he's been re- uh, writing about as of late. And one of the things, uh, John, is that um, I got some death threats myself in March when I said the lockdowns don't work, lockdowns are lazy. You know, what kind of a market are you going to have when you actually get in there and really have the heavy hand of government start to play its role, and, and you've got something that you've written about the corona absurdity collides with California, New York, and Thanksgiving. I, I think that that was very interesting, and if you could kind of let, let the listeners know what you're thinking there, and, and, and I'll jump in. Well, what I was saying is what I've always said is that absurdity eventually swallows itself. Uh, you, you can't be ridiculous forever, and we're seeing this right now. Americans no longer believe it. It's a, it's sad that they ever believed that that the very human beings that have driven all advance were suddenly somehow uh, of mortal threats to one another, that we couldn't be around each other. What a tragedy that so many Americans fell for what was so completely ridiculous and mindless um, that politicians fell for it as a given. Uh, They're always trying to protect themselves, and so they needlessly put tens of millions out of work, uh, wrecked countless businesses, rushed hundreds of millions around the world towards starvation when Americans decadently decided to take a break from reality and and hide from something you can't possibly hide from. But anyway, uh, Americans are starting to get wise, and you're seeing it in California, you're seeing it in New York. Uh, Even the law, even sheriffs are no longer willing to enforce such absurd decrees as you you have to limit the number of people you have for Thanksgiving dinner. Um, You have to limit uh, uh, how long your business is open, um, what hours it can be open. And and again, I think this is a happy thing. Uh, this is a human rights tragedy, but slowly but surely Americans are getting wise. So you, you said that politicians fell for it, and obviously the electorate has. Who, who was the instigator, you think? I don't think it was the media, and let me explain why. I think there's this view that, well, the media got people hot and bothered, but where would we be without Facebook? Where would we be without Twitter and all these entities through which uh, people like me and you and others were able to spread truth about what was never lethal? Um, and so I, I think, to me, that I'm embarrassed to say this because I think prosperity is, is a beautiful thing. I think Americans got so rich this time around that they thought, oh, okay, well, we can kind of um, – the, the, the way to fight a virus is to, is to hide indoors. Uh, we can do that for a few weeks. They didn't realize the politicians were never going to let them back out. They are <laughs> going to try to maintain the lockdowns forever. But I think to some degree it was prosperity. Imagine if they tried to do this in 2000. 
the technology, living standards would have been impossible in 2000. Too many people's jobs were destinations back then. Uh, we, we could never have, have operated from home, from a work That's basis, a from an eating basis, from, from, a, from, a, from an exercise, from an entertainment basis in the way that we have. And so I think to some degree, uh, the, the amazing advances – uh, of technology made what was absurd possible because it, I mean I, I'm talking too long, but let's let's never forget historically it's just a known quantity among people that the, there are only two ways to fight a virus either through a vaccine or natural immunity. I didn't let people get it yep. and develop natural immunity, and yet this time we we, we chose to to hide and, and lock ourselves down. Uh, the, the past generations would have would have thought we were, we were nuts. Well, I, I, you know I. My big thing was, you know, I, I, I'm involved with math, right? That's my job. And, and really, when you talk about the flatten the curve or 15 days to fight, you know, the, all you're doing is taking the ends of the bell curve and pulling them out, right? So you're flattening the curve, but you're lengthening the time that we're going to be locked down, right? Yep. Because it doesn't, you know, flattening the curve doesn't change how many people get sick. It just changes how quickly they go to the hospital, right? So we were only really worried about overrunning our hospitals, which clearly didn't happen, number one. And number two, it just lengthened the time that people had to be locked up, cooped up. And I think that, had, that had, you know, that also led to a lot of the, the, <clears throat> the problems that we had this summer. I mean, all these people coming off lockdowns and then have a, a, a social justice cause, and this thing was a tinderbox ready to blow. But I, I think you're, you're, you're exactly right. If we didn't have the, the, te- the technology we have today – like we wouldn't have had in 2000, um, it would have been a much bigger story. You know what? Maybe I, I would probably go one step further and say, you know what? We had the choice this time around. We didn't have the choice back then. So we, but given the choice, we, we took a bad path. And I think that the path we took was a panic path because we just went after whatever the Chinese did we were going to do. And if you remember correctly, the Chinese locked down. So I guess that's what we were going to have to do. But, you know, I took the time in March and I read four or five white papers of which some of the people that you've seen on your television screens were part of. And they were written pre-pandemic, not in a pandemic, so they were more level-headed. And the first thing they basically all said was lockdowns just don't work. And so I don't know why that was our go-to. Uh, I think it was because nobody – it was a panic, and, and we did what the Chinese did. But I, I, I think that uh, the damage that we did – and I'm not going to be – you know, I'm, I'm not crazy and I'm not, I don't have my, my tinfoil hat on, but we still haven't really been able to tot up the damage. We haven't added up all of the collateral things that have gone wrong, and we'll be still adding up five, maybe even eight years from now because of you know what, what has happened to this economy. Who's going to want to invest – Who's going to want to open up a restaurant when the government can shut you off like a light switch, right? Who's going to take all their cash and all their life savings to do something, you know, open up something that the government can shut down? I think those are the long-term psychological effects that nobody really going to handle of. And, and, and I think it speaks to why we cannot make this a numerical argument. And my point here is, look, I know the statistics probably not as well as you that 94% of those who, quote, died with the virus had some other uh, morbid aspect to them, usually more than one. Uh, we know that from the New York Times is routinely reported that 45% of deaths in the U.S. are associated with nursing homes. This has largely fallen on old people. Uh, for young people, it's never really been a disease at all. Okay, so the numbers work. The numbers render all this absurd, but what a dangerous way to fight this war because it just sets the stage for the next time that the experts will say, you know, this time is different. We've seen a few people in their 30s get it, so we've got to take away your freedom again. The answer has to be first, last, and every time freedom. Free people produce information about how a virus spreads. I will bet you any amount of money that 10 years from now, what we know about the virus 
won't have aged very well. And so the only way you can know something is let people live their lives as they would before. Some would lock down in total. Some would would wash their hands fastidiously, and some would hit every bar and restaurant. They could. <laughs> you need all you need all three to find out why things spread. Because I think it's fairly clear. A, China didn't lock down right away. They had months where the population was developing its own immunity. But B, France locked down heavily, and they had a pretty high death rate. Other countries, Japan didn't lock down much at all. Tokyo was largely free, and they had very low death rates. It's hard to draw any conclusion that lockdowns are the source of saving lives. There's no real evidence supporting that claim. Right. Well, that's a great spot to uh, take a quick break. Uh, Stay with me, and we'll be right back. Show.com. Okay, everybody, this is uh, the Dan Prof Show. I'm Scott Shelley, as you can tell by myself stumbling over my words. But uh, we, we're with uh, John Tamney. We've uh, had John on for a large part of the hour here. We're going to finish him up uh, right now. We've got a few more minutes left, and uh, it's great. We, we went to break talking about lockdowns and and I, and I uh, wholeheartedly agree that, uh, you know, these types of things, again, if you look at uh, the totality of the coronavirus in 10 years' time, it will have not aged well. I think also <laughs> with what the politicians are doing will not have aged well either. And, and it's funny that uh, we've got these, uh, you know, I, it's like you can't watch the news anymore, right? Because I, they can't you not use the word spike, shatter, surge, right? Um, those types of things to get your emotions going. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're right. This is a disease that looks as though it's, it's, it's really affecting those that are older. And it's interesting to see now that we've had all this information, I think, and I think this highlights the absurdity in my own mind, that even in the middle of all the hyperbole and all these cases, because they, t- they don't talk about deaths anymore. They want to scare you with the number of cases, just like they wouldn't ever really put on non-fatal car crashes every day, right? Because they wouldn't, you know, that's, it's the same information to me. It's useless. But it's, it's interesting to see that they've decided to open up the schools in the middle of this spike or rise or, you know, these records being shattered. And it's because ultimately they, they can't continue to me with that, that charade, that lie that it's not a, a safe place for kids. What do you think? Yeah, no, again, uh, absurdity eventually swallows itself. And uh, my next book, it comes out in March. It's titled When Politicians Panicked. It's about what happened. Uh, But it it makes this point that you allude to about cases. Cases are largely a constant. Everyone was going, the CDC always acknowledged everyone was going to be exposed to this and eventually be infected. You you can't policy your way out of it. Uh, The difference with the U.S. is we're the richest country in the world. We've tested about, we've conducted about 175 million tests. Mm Contrast this with Indonesia. That's 270 million people. We're 330 million. The number of tests they've conducted per 1,000 people is eight. Now, keep in mind, in Mexico, it's 13. In, in the Philippines, it's 35. And so Indonesia has very few coronavirus deaths. Well, do you think that somehow they're genetically unique, or, or do you think maybe it's because no one's being tested? And so what's happening is old people are dying there, as they frequently do here. Uh, but the difference is old people here, oh, yeah, they had coronavirus in addition to everything else. So the, the cases is such a worthless way of, of focusing on anything. Uh, so we knew totally that people were, were going to be infected. And so, they're not, so you have the New York Times saying, well, the virus is raging. 
And so they say it on the front page, yeah, it's a raging virus. Well, yeah, everyone was supposed to get it. Yeah. But then you go into the newspaper, and, and again, they, they continue to acknowledge that if you look at it, Sweden's another example, 45% of deaths from the virus were related to people in nursing homes. This is an old people thing. That doesn't, it's not to minimize it, but when an old right. person dies, it's rarely a tragedy. It's very sad, but it's, it's almost never a tragedy. Right. And so we're wrecking the economy, wrecking people's lives based on people probably who were, were, were sick in the first place were probably going to pass either way. It's well, just, we could have so sad. You and I could have gotten through a lot of beers talking about this because I 100 percent agree with you. So uh, we're coming up against a hard break. We're going to have to leave it at that. But uh, that's John Tamney. Thank you, John. He's a, the editor of The Real Clear Markets, director of the Center for Economic Freedom and Freedom Works and the author of At the End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. Thanks a lot, uh, John, for joining us. Thanks, Scott. Great right. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Okay, everybody. Well, welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. Uh, I'm not Dan. Um, I am Scott Shelley, otherwise known as the Cow Guy. You'll see me on Fox Business News and TD Ameritrade and things like that. But I'm sitting in for Dan today, and uh, we are lucky to have with us um, a guest, Lieutenant uh, Colonel James Carafano. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel is the Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation and the author of Wiki at War, Conflict in a Socially Networked World and Private Sector, Public Wars, Contractors in Combat. Uh, I'd like to welcome Lieutenant Colonel James Carafano to the show. Hey, great to be with you. So you don't know that much about me, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, but I I, uh, I do a lot of the financial stuff uh, on the uh, cable news networks. And I also have a grandfather who served in World War II, and it's probably would be remiss of me not to mention that today, obviously, being December the 7th, is a really big deal, and I appreciate your service, and obviously... Um, that was uh, probably one of the turning points of our country back then. So we can't not, not say anything about it. Yeah, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of memorable Decembers during World War II. Everybody remembers Pearl Harbor, which, of course, you know, brought the United States um, into the war. But, you know, it was another December in 1944 that the Battle of the Bulge broke out. And yes. maybe one of the most harrowing experiences for American servicemen, you know, fighting in horrible weather and frozen foxholes, you know, desperately trying to hang on to keep the Germans from stretching out World War II. So that we have an awful lot to be thankful for oh, from, and you know, from that generation. And I'm, it, it, not that I'm weird or anything, I am, but I, I, you know, I have spent 16 <laughs> years living in London and I have a British passport now because of that. And so, you know, you, you actually really live history a little bit more over there because, you know, things that you go to work in every day were bombed or there's buildings that are missing and you still can see the scars of what happened uh, on a daily basis there when they had their their issues with the Nazis bombing them every night. So, um, it's 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 important to just say that, but it's uh, also still a really big deal. But I, I wanted to get to why we're actually talking, and I, you you wrote something about the five top global issues for the day after inaugur- inauguration. I couldn't agree with you more. Now I've been very vocal about <clears throat> the coronavirus and the economy, and and pretty much uh, after the death threats that I received in March, when I thought we should not lock down, because mathematically locking down doesn't save anybody really, unless you're worried about more people overrunning the hospitals. It just prolongs the problem until maybe hopefully we get a vaccine, and we're, we're on the cusp of that. 
but that's forty two percent of the folks said that they'll you know they're not going to take it. So here we sit, and I uh, number one uh, of your list of five reasons, uh, uh, speak, you know, speaking the truth about China. Can you expound about? I mean, I totally agree with you on that, and I, I'm, unfortunately, I agree with everything on this. So it's not going to be that much yeah. of a debate. But well, you know, the the China thing is a good thing to start with, and and it actually kind of does go back to World War II. You know, the America, of course, the first time we heard America first wasn't when Donald Trump said it. It was. And on the eve of World War II, and a lot of Americans thought we shouldn't enter World War II, and actually against U.S. participation in war, and there was an organization called America First, which led that. But what happened when we got to the cusp of Pearl Harbor is, you know, people looked and said, look, what, what's the world going to look like if Germany and Japan win? And literally, they would control outside of, because the idea of America First is, well, we'll just defend ourselves, right? But in the end, Germany... And Japan would have controlled all outside of the U.S., the, all of the resources and all of the pathways around the world on the entire planet. Mm-hmm. And the notion that America, even if it hadn't been attacked and conquered, would have been a free, safe, and prosperous nation when the entire rest of the productive capacity of the world was controlled by it, that was unthinkable. And, and I raise that because if you look at Chinese strategy, Chinese strategy is incredibly aggressive. You know, we already have a contested space in the Indo-Pacific where we're competing with the Chinese over South China Seas and, and Second Island chain and, and economically everything else. But if you look at China's long-term strategy and look at what they're doing, for example, in Latin America, in Africa, in the Arctic, in the Antarctic, if, if China could just continue to do that unchallenged, then, then we'll walk up one day and the Atlantic will be as contested space as the Pacific. And America won't be a free country anymore. So the notion that somehow... Competing with China can, can ever not be tops on the list. That's just suicidal. And, and, and look, I trade commodities. We have a family farm. I mean, everything that we've just gone through over the last couple, three years, coronavirus outside of that with the tariffs and the likes and the things that we grow and sell here abroad, I, I, you know, it, it hits home with me, number one. But number two is sometimes I feel as though people look at me like I've got a tinfoil hat on and I'm speaking to some other god when I talk about the seriousness of China and, and really what a disadvantage they put us at when we want to compete with them on a fair uh, you know, footing. And, it, it, it's, and it's almost like the – and I don't want to – I mean, it is a, a political thing, obviously, but it's almost like those on the left, don't, they, they don't want to think about the bad parts of China. I mean, obviously, you, you can, I can talk about good things about China, and it would be great to have them do well and not be as poor as some of their, their, their people are. But look, what they do to us – engaging with them and trying to compete with them on their ground. It's, 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 it's highway robbery. Anybody with any common sense would say, this is not fair. Yet for some reason, I get looked at like I've got a third eye when I yeah. think that this is, this, you know, we can't continue to do this. We have to call it, you know, we have to, we have to call it a day and start over. Well, you know, we could eat up your entire radio and television career talking about the bad <laughs> things the Chinese are doing. But, but, you know, to your point, I think people say, oh, you know, well, we have to sell ourselves out to China because they're just such a huge market and they have so much money. And that's just simply not true. Um, look, we can figure out ways to do business, make it easier for people to do business here. We can do business with people who don't hate us and trying to undermine us. Uh, we, can, we, we can differentiate between when is doing business with China um, more damage and more of a threat to the U.S. than when it isn't. And I have to tell you, look, you know, maybe you hate the orange hair, maybe you hate the tweeting, I don't care. The reality is, is the last four years we've had a very effective foreign policy, which, and again, I'm not a partisan person, because I don't belong to a political party. But the reality is, is we reversed eight years of dramatically destructive foreign policy in the United States. 
nowhere more worse than dealing with China because we just didn't stand up to them. And the last four years we had, we've done things like what's called reciprocity, which yep. is why do we let the Chinese do stuff here that they don't let us do there? What do we stand for that? It's nuts. Um, to not continue those policies, incredibly self-destructive. Oh, and here we are. We're just about to go back into those policies that we, you know, we, we thought we escaped from if, uh, if Joe Biden is ultimately going to be the president because he's got a much more of a kinder, gentler hand with the Chinese than, than Donald Trump. And, and, and Donald Trump, you're, you're exactly right. Take away the, the orange skin and the, and the hair and look at what the person did on paper. Every, every, every right-minded, commonsensical person would say, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But because he did it, Oh, there's got to be some sort of a problem with it, and that's a, that's what probably was the biggest one of the biggest problems of his presidency, and and that's why the Middle East and Iran is is also on my list. Yes, but yeah, the, you know, the notion that just go back to the Iran deal, I mean, that just makes absolutely no sense. Um, <laughs> no, look, what are you, you going to do about all the cheating? I mean, even the, the International Atomic Energy Agency has confirmed that that Iran has massively cheated on the Iran deal. We have demonstrable evidence it never really stopped them from pursuing a nuclear program. Um, it didn't ameliorate any of their other behaviors. Uh, to, to, to go back to the Iran deal would, would literally only be a benefit to one country, and that's Iran. At a time when we've made enormous strides in stabilizing the region, making the region step up and do more in its own security and economic development, it, we've had remarkable progress. And, and what you want to do in the Middle East is just keep doing what we're doing. Well, and we, it seems like we have this constant battle in this country about either uh, advertising American exceptionalism or going around the world as an apologist. That's what it boils down to to me. And I, like I said, I'm, I, I try to make it as simple as possible because I'm not that bright. But you, you have these people that want to apologize for America, and America's not perfect, but nobody's perfect, versus those people that want to advertise the exceptionalism and, and why all these immigrants, my wife, one of them, wanted to come to this country in the first place. Right. So that's, again, and then you go on to, to, to protecting the planet. That's another hot topic that we don't have enough time for. But, you know, again, commonsensical. Why do we let China and India do whatever they want to do until whatever, 2030, whatever it was, and we have to abide by these rules now and throw our workforce under the bus? Now, take, take Donald Trump's name off the top of that paper, and I think... Most commonsensical Americans would go, yeah, you're right. That's not fair. But for some reason, because he takes us out of that, he's the one that's bad, and they're not bad. And I don't, I'll never, ever be able to square that. Well, I mean, the reality is, is what we learned, you know, if you, look, if you just look at Obama, you know, the first two years, Obama basically just followed what Bush did. Then he put his own policies in place, which essentially is, we're going to walk away and take away the safety net. Let everybody just fend for themselves. That was an absolute disaster. If you fast forward to the end of Obama's administration, they recognize that they got Iran wrong. They got global terrorism wrong. They got Russia wrong. They got China wrong. They, they recognize they got everything wrong. And then they got the get-out-of-jail-free card because they left. And now, you know, we're four years forward. All the Obama people are coming back. Yep. The people who are wrong on everything, they were wrong on the Iran deal. They were wrong on not normalizing relations with the Arab nations. They were wrong on not moving the embassy to Jerusalem. I mean, they were wrong on everything. Well, and if if they they cannot if they come back and they go back to where we were four years ago, fortunately, being wrong on all those things is going to be where we're going to have to make this break. We got a hard break <laughs> coming up, but I really wanted to thank you for your time. Uh, it's Lieutenant uh, Colonel James Carafano. Uh, thanks for joining us here today, uh, and uh, look forward to seeing anything else you've got to put out. All right, great being with you. Thanks. Well, we're-
butt seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Well, welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'm Scott Shellady. Uh, I'm otherwise known as the cow guy, as corny as that may sound. Uh, we do have a family farm, actually. And uh, I'm on the uh, the Fox Business Network. I talk about public policy, uh, the economy, the markets in general, and what may or may not happen. But uh, I'm happy to be uh, in for Dan today. And uh, we've got uh, a guest um, that's been got some recently written some decent stuff and his name is Scott McKay he's a publisher at the uh, Hayride and a contributor to the American Spectator Scott welcome to the show Hey Scott thanks for having me on Another guy with the name of Scott you know and I'm I'm not going to ask your your age I'll tell you I'm 55 but when I was born in 1965 um the the, the three top names were Scott Kevin and Todd and, and I landed on one of them but that was you know you don't see Scott really doesn't make it into the normal f- top five names anymore. Neither does Kevin or Todd. <laughs> but uh, it's just kind of no, it, whenever I meet a Kevin, a Todd, or a Scott, I'm like, you know what? You're probably around fifty, fifty-five. It was a, well. It was a it was a, uh, a a hot name in 1970 when I came along. There but, you go. Um, I notice it's it's uh, it's not up there with the Jordans and Justins these <laughs> days. So, um, right. I'm dating myself a no, little bit that's with my great. first you name, said, I guess. Yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> Well, anyway, um, I've been thinking about this. You wrote about Joe Biden, unity, fraud, and power. And uh, maybe you want to expand upon it for a second, but I've definitely got my thoughts. But it's, you, what you wrote was pretty interesting. Well, I, you know, I, um, David Marcus at The Federalist wrote a, a really good piece, I guess, Monday of last week uh, that basically was like the, uh, you know, the, the not my president crowd from 2017 has a really, really, really tough road to hoe, uh, talking about how Trump voters should be unified with Biden as president now, right? Like, I mean, you burn through all of that over the last four years with the resistance and, you know, all of these different things that trying to deny a duly elected president uh, the ability to govern. And now you have somebody who is only arguably a duly elected president and you demand unity. Um and, and honestly, you know, Biden has has put that out there, uh, making that demand. And the fact of the matter is, there is very little that he's done that makes the demand for unity anything other than a demand for obedience. I mean, you know, I, as we talk about this, you know, this morning, uh, it comes out that Xavier Becerra is going to be his HHS nominee now. Is that a unity government? I mean, when you start talking about the Janet Yellens and the Neera Tandons and the and the Anthony Blinkleys, and I mean, this is a bunch of unreconstructed Obama, you know, retreads and Democrat partisans who are getting all of these cabinet posts. And if the guy was really serious about unity, like where are the Republicans in the cabinet? Like where is the the outreach to Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell? You know, hey, let's put a legislative agenda together that that, you know, Republicans can live with and all of these different things. Um, There's been none of that. I mean, he's talking about a a hundred day national shutdown as soon as he takes office. Yeah, all are things that are almost designed to stoke as much unrest among Republicans and conservatives as possible at the same time that he's talking about unity. I just found that really really in your face. 
for him to talk about these things. And I, I, I don't think it's going to have the effect that they say they want. Well, I would say I'll go one step further. I, you know, for for what's going on over the last so many years, this this call for unity, and it's not just him. It's it's, it's a lot of politicians do that, right? And they and they say that now it's the time to come behind me and support my policies. That's not unity. Right. Anybody that says right. that is one of two things: either ignorant or just plain stupid. Because right. you're asking, well, Biden is both. I mean, I, but but I think the, remember this: you can't take anything that comes out of Joe Biden's mouth as evidence of what Joe Biden thinks, because this is the most handled president in American history. Right. Uh, with the with the slight exception of after you know Woodrow Wilson had stroked out and his wife was essentially the president of the country. Um. I mean, you know, so when when Joe Biden reads something off a teleprompter, it's, you know, his handlers, whether that's Ron Klain or, you know, whoever these these kind of people that we're not really allowed to see who they are that actually run him. Um, You know, but, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the call for unity is one of these things that, well, this is what you're supposed to do after, a you know, a highly contested election. Uh, and so, you know, they're going to do it. But. You know, it's, I mean, he's acting like he's got a mandate, it's, which it's so is insane. Yeah, I know it is insane. Yeah, I mean, I, dude, I, what mandate? I mean, you know, there there are still six states out there where a, a large number of people, if not maybe even a majority of the people in those states, do not think that the official vote tally represents what actually happened on election night. So, um, you know, I mean, if ever there was a time to be conciliatory and say, look, I get it. You know, down ballot Democrats got pretty badly beaten. Um, you know, Biden wins under some. I, I mean, I, I, at, at best, you could say dubious circumstances. Right. So if he's going to be president, you know, the answer is okay. Well, I, I get it. The country split half and half. Let me see if I can make this work with you guys. What, you know, what can I do for you that will you know kind of calm things down. Um, and that may be a, a fool's errand in and of itself, but the fact that nobody on their side is is even remotely reaching out to do that really gives the lie to this unity call. Yeah, on and this it questions my belief in their brain power because I I I mean I don't I I think a second grader could understand the fact that if 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 somebody gets in now they're in power or they're now the class president. And they say, okay, the way we're going to unify is you have to abandon all of your ideals that you've been fighting for the last three years and suddenly now agree with everything and anything I say. I, that just doesn't sit well with anybody. I mean, that's where the, that's right. where the common sense might, might have left the, the general electorate, or at least our, our politicians, because for some reason they think that that's, it's so disingenuous to sit there and say, let's get behind my, uh, our ideals, my ideas, the things that I got elected on, which you're right, there was no clear mandate, and not think twice about, hmm. You know, it's ever since we got Obamacare jammed down our throats, that whole idea of kind of working across the aisle has kind of gone out the window. Let, let me throw this theory at you and see what you think of it. I think some of this comes, I mean, some of it comes for the fact that that today's Democrats and today's left are either the most power hungry people that have ever walked the, the you know the walk the the uh, the earth on uh, on this continent. The theory is this: so the vast majority of Democrat office holders uh, come from these urban areas, right? And mm-hmm. it's sort of a, a an axiom at this point that once a city goes Democrat, particularly if it's a city and not a suburb. 
But once a city goes Democrat, basically what happens is everybody moves to the suburbs and that city's going to stay Democrat forever. Right. And I wonder if maybe the fact that Biden has won this election, their political experiences, okay, now that we've won, you know, we're going to be in charge forever. Right. Because where they come from was some urban machine that, you know, once it took power, it kept power and everybody just moved out. It doesn't work that way nationally, obviously, because there's no place for people to go. I mean, everybody's not going to pick up and move to Canada like all the Hollywood stars said they were going to do after Trump won. But, I I, you know, I, like they, they think that, though. And I wonder if that maybe didn't have something to do with this. I agree with you. And I have an answer to that. We're going to have to take a quick break. I'll come back with it after uh, these messages. Come on, baby, Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I am not Dan Proft. I'm Scott Sheldy, the cow guy, otherwise known as the cow guy. As corny as that may sound, I talk about the economy. Uh, public policy, the markets. Uh, we're kind of talking about all three of those things. We've actually taken a quick break before we really got into about people moving uh, from these big cities once we have these new um, electors or these new legislators. Um, and I'm on with uh, uh, Scott Scott McKay, sorry. Um, and, and we've been talking uh, exactly that. And Scott, um, sorry for the... Uh, the brain there. Uh, when we talk about moving, and I, and this is a big deal because I have a place out in Scottsdale, Arizona, which has been a big benefactor of the people fleeing from California. And I'm also in Indiana where there's a, big, a lot of people fleeing Illinois. And <clears throat> when there, there's going to come a time like where you said with Joe Biden, maybe it doesn't work nationally, but and when you take a smaller picture of things, people leave. And if they're, if they're not replaced, you have less of, a, of, of an electorate to tax. And then you get into this death spiral where you have to raise taxes because you're not making enough money municipally. And then more people leave because you're raising taxes. And then where does that end? I mean, then you're going to be the kingdom of one. Well, I mean, you know, you've seen where it ends. I mean, you've seen it in Cuba and in Venezuela and some of these other places where, uh, you know, you saw it in Cambodia where you had all these people that, picked up and left after the communists took over. I mean, I, you know, in, 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 you know, in East Berlin, they had to build a wall to keep everybody in. Um, you know, I, I don't know that that would ever happen here. Um, well, you know, and I, because there's no place for people to go, but I think the answer <laughs> is, you know, I, you have 50 States and a lot of them, you know, I, there are plenty of discussions of people saying, well, you know, uh, I mean, there could be red states and blue states, and maybe we end up with two countries instead of one. Well, and, I mean, you know, if states were stock it's not markets, a good thing, but... Yeah, if, if states were stock markets, you might want to be buying Montana, Utah, you know, those types of things, because I, I think you're going to see South Dakota, North Dakota become more popular destinations because of that. So, and, and here, here's another one that boggles my mind. Maybe you've got an answer, because I'm not that bright. But when, when, you, when you tax things so heavily that people do leave, ultimately, right, and they flee these states... Um, 
And then you stand behind the podium and almost scold the, the remaining electric saying, oh, we're going to have to cut services because we just don't have the money. Well, you taxed everybody out of your state. You shut your own economy down. <laughs> we're, well, I right. don't understand how they can't. That's, economic, that's Econ 101. We're, and then they, it's almost like they're scolding you. Well, we're going to oh, have to get have, Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're totally – look, scolding the electorate is something that, that left-wing politicians have become really good at, you know. <laughs> right, and and right. A, a great answer to that, I mean, you just look at COVID policy. Right. I yeah. mean, they have they have gone after everybody with these mask mandates and these shutdowns or, and none of it works. 80 percent not work. 80 percent of and, America and wears a mask now. And we still have all these. Well, know, right. And this thing is. Like, and but, you know, the answer is, well, but you're not wearing the mask correctly. And it's like, <laughs> well, OK, but, you know, you should have accounted for this when you put the mask mandate in place. Right. I mean. You know, and the answer is never that their policies are no good. It's that people don't do a good job flourishing within their policies. You know, or the idea was um, good. And, you know, one more thing direction. that, yeah, go ahead. Well, and one more thing that's you know, especially back on the tax piece is, you know, what do you do when you when you make it expensive as all hell to to live within a city in terms of you know living a law abiding existence? Is you know you create lawlessness. Um, I mean, you know, we saw this a create, good bit during the Obama administration. Create lawlessness. Well, you they, lawlessness well, they, they definitely you created it, but then they wanted to fund the people that are there to keep the law. Well, but like, you know, okay, Biden wants to go and, I mean, he talks about raising taxes through the sky. Well, what you do when you raise taxes is you move people into the cash economy, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the Soviet Union ran on a black market. I mean, I, you know, I, there was a reason why all of these oligarchs were basically Russian mafia guys who just went legit when the USSR collapsed because they were the people that made that country work. You know, the Communist Party couldn't deliver goods and services and the black market did. So the gangsters were the ones that ran that country. Well, you're going to have a great deal of that here in this country if Biden's agenda becomes a thing. I mean, you're going to have black market gasoline show up. You can't stop people from creating stuff that people want to well, buy. Well, we'll go to the barter economy when he's when we're, we're staring at four point four trillion dollars in trillion dollars in tax hikes. That's where we'll go. We'll be we'll start going back to the sure. barter economy where we're trading goods and services for other goods and services. Right. Well, you know, well, he's going to have Bitcoin in that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a whole other stuff. Well, I tell you, that's um, we're going to go away for a quick break, but that, let's. Let's pick that back up about uh, taxation and, and these services and what these legislators are doing and, and to, to you know strangle themselves and, and, and kill off the, the constituency. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Okay, well, welcome back. Uh, I'm Scott Schulte. This is the Dan Prof Show. This is Dan Prof's show. I'm, I'm honored to be sitting in for Dan. Uh, I'm Scott Schulte, the cow guy. We're the black and white. Uh, it's actually a trading jacket. People really don't know that, but it's uh, in, in deference to the fact that we had a, a dairy farm when I was a kid. And, you know, we're setting, actually, setting prices, an important economic function down there, trading on the trading floor. But I'm with uh, Scott McKay today. Uh, he's a publisher at the Hayride and a contributor to the American Spectator. We've been talking about um, 
I don't know, I'm going to say lunacy, the lunacy of our legislators that are, are, are taxing, uh, they are uh, giving, legislating us into oblivion when it comes to uh, our taking our rights away for our safety, scaring us for our safety, and, and taxing us because they don't have enough money to get the things done that they wanted to for our, our, our health and our safety. And, Scott, thanks for being on. I mean, where do you think, what's, what's the end game here? I mean, wh- where do you think this goes? Well, you know, I I mean, it's just, it's a decline agenda, you know, I mean, there's, there's not really much you can, I I mean, at base, what you have is the complete 180 degree difference between the private sector and the public sector. When you start talking about, you know, destroying a tax base by raising taxes and then, you know, turn around in, in the private sector, you know, what you're always trying to do is to squeeze the most out of every dollar that you get. Efficiency. Because you can't just unilaterally raise prices on your products, right? You can offer premium products and get more, uh, you know, for them and perhaps drive a, a better profit on that, but you have to be able to sell that as something different and better than what you're normally doing. In the public sector, it's all about providing the least possible product for the largest possible price because, that's how you steal the money, right? And, <laughs> right. you know, and, and like, I, I'll give you an example. Over the weekend, there was a round of elections down here in Louisiana. And in the city of New Orleans, the mayor, Latoya Cantrell, who is every bit as bad as Lori Lightfoot is. I mean, I'll just that's, I'll, I'll that's put it out there. I mean, she is that's that bad. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is that bad. Um, and what she, I mean, she basically came out and said, okay, we've got four tax renewals that are on the ballot. You have to pass all four. I'm going to have to start laying off city employees. Then it comes out that the city of new Orleans, which I mean, new Orleans right now has about 350, 400,000 people, something like that. It's, it's not a big city anymore. Okay. They have 540 city employees making six figures. And everybody's like, well, if you need to lay some of these people off, then good. And all four of these tax renewals, and this is in a city, hadn't elected a Republican to anything in forever. Those four tax renewals failed miserably. I think one of them got 44%, and that was the best any of them did. You know, and so this is a really left-wing city, and they're like, you know, we're not only are we not paying more taxes, we're not paying the taxes we're paying because this place is run so poorly. You know, and that you, that's where you ultimately run into is the fact that there's just no more money, and people really realize the scam and you know the ones that can't move out actually begin voting a little bit like republicans because they can't afford not to um i think we saw a little bit in california this time around just a little bit you know where we saw some things yeah i mean it's a little i mean sooner or later everybody gets the red pill because like margaret thatcher said the facts of life are conservative but in these cities where there's simply no republican carrying a message ever you know, those folks, I mean, they've got to figure it out for themselves because they're just not hearing it. And, uh, you know, you ultimately get that in some of these blue cities. But, I mean, th- by the time you get that, the economics are so clear because so many people have picked up and left that there's really not much that, that you can do. It's funny how you just said, you know, about the, the down in Louisiana, they, they, you get this this condescending like, OK, now you're going to make me run my 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 government like a like a you know a, a conservative like a business I you know, I have to be accountable to my costs and my overheads. Well, yeah, you should have been all along, but no. And so, yeah. right? I mean, it's like they they're almost angry with you that now they're you're making them play by the rules. Oh, and, they're totally angry. And I mean, I, it, it, it defies yeah. logic because you know clearly they you know they they've been 
signing the back of the check, not the front of the check. And that's the problem is you don't know. Look, if you knew how to run a business, the first thing you would not do is get rid of your customers. And that's what they've done with the lockdowns, right? Let's, yes. we, we're going to shut everything down. And then I, wait a minute. I don't get any tax revenue from that. That's the problem. They're all running. And they didn't think about that. And they and so well what they go ahead. what they thought was the feds were just going to you know drop money out of helicopters and make it all all right. Do you and, think there's a big chance know, of that happening? For a while I mean, that happened, but you know they haven't gotten this last tranche of of COVID money, and and all of these people are panicking now. So well, I, I think that's what know. the governor of Illinois was counting on for sure. Um, and I, do, you, do you, uh, in your in your mind, I think you probably know more about it than I do. I'm for sure you do. Is is that what's the likelihood of a bailout or some sort of bailout for these people happening as far as these blue states go? Oh, I you know I, I would be shocked if the Republicans in the Senate uh, had enough uh, sand to tell Pelosi and Biden no. I would I'd be shocked. But, and, they, you know, which is I think the, the package they're talking about now is nine hundred billion dollars and it's almost all state and local government bailout money. You know, so I, I mean, it's I'm sure it's coming um, and, and we're going to find out there's a lot in there that's just absolutely awful. But, you know, they don't want to stonewall it because they think they're going to lose one of these two or both of these two races in Georgia if they get seen as obstructionist. And so we're going to have to eat it. But. You know, I mean, that's but that's the whole thing. It's just never ending federal dollars that skew the economics. And because of the federal money, you have this this I call it weaponized um, governmental failure, which is the worse you govern as an urban Democrat, the better it is for you, because the people that you run off are the middle class. So perverse. Right. And and, I mean, well, you're running off the middle class and the middle class are the people that keep politicians accountable because they actually want things. And they're the ones that run small. Yeah. They run small businesses. They run all the things that keep things alive. That's right. And I mean, you know, but like they actually want roads without potholes in them and they want schools that, (laughs) you know, that, that don't teach kids, you know, yeah. transgenderism and, and all this other stuff. And they, you know, they don't want politicians to steal money and they want the you know costs to be kept down. And, you know, those are the people that pick up and move to the suburbs. And what's left is, you know, the rich who pay for their all, all their own stuff. They have private security in the neighborhoods. The kids go to private schools, you know, and, and, you know, they'll bribe their way toward anything else they need from the, from the, you know, from the governing class and the poor, who, you know, they don't have nice things and they don't really know how to get nice things. So <laughs> right. you can promise them whatever and they'll take it, right? Right. Um, and that's, gonna... who, that's who Democrats want to govern and not the middle class. All right. I totally agree with you. We'll, we'll continue in that vein in a second here. We're going to have to take a quick break. I'm with Scott McKay. Podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Okay, welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'm Scott Shalady, uh, otherwise known as the Cow Guy, uh, I'm, uh, on Fox Business News, talking about the markets, talking about the economy, talking about public policy, and I'm doing that today. With Scott McKay, I brought Scott back just to be able to say a proper farewell. But it's uh, it's been great having uh, your views, uh, Scott. And if, in the, if I gave you sixty seconds to sum up again, 
where 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 do we go? When do we get back to normal? When does life begin to look like December of 2019? What do you think? I I, I can't answer that question because I really don't know, and it bothers me that I don't know. I mean, I think we're in a really scary time right now, Scott. Yeah, I yeah I okay. I'll tell you. I'll be a little bit more blunt. I'll say we're never getting back to normal. It's never going to be back to the way it was. Um, the psychological damage has been done. That's been done to the electorate and to our businesses and to our investors is is we won't know the total score on that. And it's going to reshape the way we do things. It's going to create opportunity. That doesn't mean it's all doom and gloom. Some people right. are going to do well out of that. Uh, but at the same time, the way that we used to, you know, we've destroyed our main streets. Our main streets are going to be big box stores and, and chain restaurants that can suffer these types of things. It's going to be Bed Bath & a Burger. It's, you know, I'm, I'm not too uh, excited about what that'll be. But there'll be opportunity. And I just don't know. You know, I, I, I'm 55. Um, I lived in London. It was great to go to those little restaurants on those cobbled streets, you know, and you were sitting in a, these really tight, cramped, romantic corners of these places. Are people going to sit shoulder to shoulder in small restaurants anymore in New York and Wall Street and, and or in England? I mean, I don't know. I think that we've done some big, big, big time damage. And if you you brought it up about Biden doing another lockdown nationwide, that's going to put us back another yeah. three years if he does that. What do you it's think? devastating. I mean, I just you know, I, I I think you're right, and I don't want you to be right, but I think you're <laughs> right, and you know, it's one of those things where you get up every morning, you're like, okay, I mean, what can I do that's positive today? And, you know, should, can I, can I live with, with lowered expectations? And, and that, you know, I, I, there's a, a great deal of grief associated with that. But, yes. You know, I'm not prepared to, to, to accept any of it yet. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on uh, and I am not accepting of it either, but he's Scott McKay, publisher at the Hayride and contributor to the American Spectator. Uh, thanks Scott for coming on. Thanks. Thanks a lot. And I, you know, to to Scott's point, um, and to my point is this: you know, sixty seconds left in this segment, and we're not going back to normal, folks. Get that get out get that out of your brain. Um, you get get the idea of getting in a packed elevator out of your brain. Maybe it'll affect our sporting events. Who knows? But we've really beaten everybody up so psychologically that it's just going to be hard to unlearn that damage. Because it's not financial. It is. It, there's a ton of financial damage out there, but the, the financial damage can be rectified, but the psychological damage, again, I've said it before, it's the only thing that's going to heal those wounds, unfortunately, is time. And, and who knows where we get to at the end of that time, but it's not going to look like it did in December of 2019 or even January of 2020. We're going to be Moving on to a new opportunity, it doesn't mean it's all doom and gloom. There's going to be some opportunity, but at the same time, kind of get rid of the fact, get rid of the idea that it's going to go back to the way it was. Thank you. This is the Dan Proft Show.